For Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, I'm Nick Hennon, and this is SciVibe. I have a lot of favorite projects. Um, I would have to say one of the best is when you get a sample and you're able to put it into this completely unique proportional counter with a very low background design and, and produce a number that otherwise no one else would be able to come up with. And so it's, it's that impact factor of being able to, to kind of point to something and say, you know, I was part of this that without, you know, um, PNNL's expertise and experience and the measurements that I did to help, then, you know, they wouldn't have this piece of understanding. And so it's really about that impact value. Science, technology, scientific discovery. This is SciVibe. Today, we're talking with physicist Emily Mace, and I'm so glad you were able to come on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I wanted to talk to you for quite some time, and I know a lot about what you do, and I'm interested in your work. Thank you. And so, is it fair to say you specialize in interpreting radioactive signals such as those emitted during underground nuclear weapon tests? Yeah, that's certainly one way to put it. I, I kind of specialize in anything radiation detection, so mostly on the detector side of things. What was your first memory of an interest in science? Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I've, I've always enjoyed science, but I don't know that I, I necessarily knew I wanted to go into physics from a young age. I've just, I've always had this innate curiosity about the world and things around me. And so I've, I've always, you know, spent time kind of exploring different parts of nature and creation and just really enjoy digging into the details of things. I'm very analytical that way. Um, and so I just kind of naturally went down the path of exploring science and it just led me further and further into you know, physics and kind of ended up where I'm at today. So you weren't in the sandbox and saying, I'm going to be a physicist. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you were curious. Yeah, I, I've always had a natural curiosity and my parents, you know, just encouraged that. Uh, my dad's in uh, forest management, and so we, we grew up outside, you know, playing in the woods and learning the names of different things and just kind of exploring how uh, things grow and work. And so that's always been, been fun for me. That's really awesome. So what was growing up like? So growing up, we, we moved around a lot when we were little. And so um, my mom and dad actually homeschooled my sister and I. And then um, as we got older and kind of outgrew the, the math and science that, that my mom knew, they sent us to community college. And that's where I took my first physics class and was just uh, immediately challenged and <laughs> kept going from there. That's such a great story because a lot of people wouldn't think that, you know, a physicist at a national laboratory would have started at a community college. Absolutely. I had some of the best memories taking classes there. My first physics teacher was just really good. And I think that makes all the difference is just the, the teachers that you have who are willing to invest in your life change the course of people's future. Sure. And and they just reached you in a way that you felt really resonated and you were like, this is something, there's something here for me. Yeah, absolutely. It was very much challenging. It was a little beyond the scope of what I was maybe ready for. And so I, I liked that. And, you know, it, it encouraged me to push myself. <laughs> I've always been a nervous test taker. So I definitely can admit that I um, I failed my first physics test that I ever took. <laughs> it was, but then I, I recovered and uh, got an A at the end, but it was, it was an intense start. <laughs> That's so relatable. <laughs> so I understand that you studied groundwater contamination and nuclear explosions and a variety of stuff before you realized kind of like what you were getting into as a student, how did your career path wind and, and get into uh, you coming to PNNL? 
When I was a sophomore in undergrad, 9-11 happened. I remember being in instrumental physics class and the first plane hit the towers and just that whole cascade of events that took place from there. I was pretty young in my, not even a career at that point, I was still in school. And so when I went to grad school, I started doing work with a professor who's doing applied physics, looking at how to detect explosives in vehicles Mm -hmm. um, using radiation detectors and some really novel attempts at doing that. And so um, that sort of started my career. And then from there, I went, started at PNNL 12 years ago now and just really wanted to um, find ways to use the physics and the science that I love to protect and, and, I don't know, invest in the safety and security of our nation. That's wonderful. Protecting our nation. It's it's an important thing. People that we love. That's right. That's right. What inspires you? Inspiration is a tricky one for me. It's I have a natural curiosity and I got into this low background radiation detector world and it's challenging and there are new techniques and it's, you know, taking a a capability that was developed specifically for fundamental physics, like looking for dark matter, which is way outside of what I do, but taking this technology and applying it to ways for national security and environmental science. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of being able to take and develop new methods and apply it into different areas. So it's it goes back to that curiosity, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. How are you pushing limits to detect secret international nuclear explosions? Yeah, so one of the ways that we do that is through electroforming copper. And so it's it's a lot in materials development. So one thing that I've really come to appreciate at PNNL is that you get to work with world-class scientists in all different levels or all different areas and fields. And so we have some incredible chemists and mechanical engineers, and um, they've developed uh, ways of growing electroformed copper, which is basically a fancy way of saying, you know, we take commercial copper and then purify it until there's only copper left, so there's no other natural environmental backgrounds in it. Mm. We have this ultra-pure material that we can use to do all kinds of things. So it was originally kind of intended for that uh, dark matter physics experiments. Um, And we're also using it for detectors for national security, which is kind of fun. Yeah. What does an ultra-sensitive radiation detector do? <laughs> yeah, so ultra-sensitive radiation detector actually detects radiation decay events. So a specific example would be to think about one of the things we like to use is argon-37, which is created when a neutron interacts with calcium, maybe in the soil of some area. We can suck that gas out of the soil and purify it so that we just have argon left. And then that argon gas gets put into one of these copper detectors. And essentially what we're looking for are one of these radiation events to decay in the gas. It creates this little avalanche, kind of like a cloud of electrons. And that charge is then read out and becomes the signal that we're looking at. So we can look at different signals that happen in the gas in our proportional counters. And what makes that unique is the low background materials of those detectors and the places that they operate. That's really fascinating. Can you tell me a little bit about your work uh, in the shallow underground lab? What's that like? Yeah, it's, so it's, it's really fun. It's a unique facility. It's 
we call it shallow underground lab because it's actually, if you take the stairs, which, which I like to do, I'm a little bit OCD. And so I like to count the stairs. There are 68 to the bottom of the scale. <laughs> so go down to the bottom of the shallow lab. And the reason it's shallow is that we kind of hit the groundwater table. We're pretty low here in Richland. We don't have a lot of, of depth. And so our lab is a shallow depth. But it provides shielding from the the cosmic rays and the natural environmental background around us. Okay. Just enough that it allows us to keep our materials pure. So the underground itself is a clean room. And so to go into the underground, you have to put on a full bunny suit. So, you know, you're putting on the gloves, wearing the face mask that we're all now, you know, accustomed to wearing. Yeah. And the hairnet and then a full bunny suit. You know, a lot of people think of radiation and they think contamination events and, and um, you know, trying to protect the people from the radiation. In the underground, it's actually the opposite problem. Um, we're trying to protect all of the low background equipment from the people. And so as a person, you're actually the most you know radioactive thing that we're worried about. So we're covering the, the human person who's entering so that any dust and particles and grease on your skin doesn't create additional backgrounds on these low background detectors. So it's sort of the opposite scale of contamination. That's interesting. Can you explain the basics of groundwater science, say to someone who doesn't have any understanding? Sure. I'll I'll caveat this for my scientist friends who actually are groundwater scientists. Um, I'm a physicist, so I I have measured some really interesting things. I'm not actually the expert in this field. So (laughs) with that in mind, my understanding of it is that we're looking at how old a particular aquifer might be. And the reason that scientists are interested in kind of understanding the age of groundwater is because they're looking at uh, their resources. And so they're trying to understand, you know, how are they relying on fresh rainwater every year versus recharging from deep underground. So it's a it's a concern for them to kind of understand how long water stays in their aquifer so that they are, you know, using their resources well every year. So we collect samples from some of these groundwater aquifers, and what we're looking for are the radiation isotopes that have certain half-lives. And so we can track how long something has maybe been out of contact with the atmosphere, and then is rained out in the rainwater, becomes part of the groundwater table, and then starts to decay away. So that argon-39 that was created in the atmosphere is now underground and is slowly decaying away with a half-life of 269 years which is a nice long time. And the nice part about the argon-39 is that it has a half-life on the order of hundreds of years compared to what's currently used in groundwater age dating are things like tritium and krypton-85 that have half-lives around you know tens of years. And then on the other end, there's carbon-14 that has thousands of years half-life. Wow. Argon-39 kind of fits in right in the middle of those two things, which is really cool. It is really cool. And I feel like I just took a mini college course because I've I've learned so much. (laughs) Okay, uh, so change things up a bit. What advice would you have for a young woman entering this sort of typically male-dominated career? That's a good question because, you know, looking back across my career, I can can definitely see that it is, you know, very male-dominated. But I would have to say that P&NL, that, you know, in my career, I don't feel like I have been treated any differently than the men in my field. 
even through undergrad, you know, the, the ratios were maybe slightly different, but you definitely, you just continue to work hard and don't expect to be treated differently either, better or worse. And um, I think that that holds true for my career anyways. That's great. There's something about working in a collaborative environment like a national laboratory. I think across the board, I see that diversity is, is of course, there, right? And we know that, that we're rich in numbers in terms of males and females and people from all different walks of life, but that, that's always very secondary, right? It's just, let's get to work, let's do what we need to do, let's focus on the tasks at hand. We're very mission-focused, mm-hmm. and so I feel like it's about, you know, I'm, I really enjoy the, the people, the colleagues that I have here at the lab. That's so great to hear, Emily, and I really, I, I can't agree more. PNNL is a unique but also very special place. Yeah. Where is the coolest place or conference that you've traveled to for work? One of my favorites was going to Gran Sasso um, in Italy and getting to see some of these fundamental physics experiments in action deep in the mountains in Gran Sasso. And so that was a really cool experience. And then... Um, My second one would be the Mark Conference, which takes place every three years in Hawaii. And it's just, it's always nice when you get to, uh, after all the conferencing is done, actually to go play on the beach. But I always bring my husband with me. And so he'll send me pictures in the middle of the conference of himself at the beach without me, which, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, that's so unfair. Yeah, he'll be at the golf course. (laughs) You're like, glad you're having a great time. I'm working. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) What was the most interesting physics course you took at university? This is a good one as well. Solid state physics. We um, were studying packing ratios of atoms and molecules. And our final, we had to go into another physics professor's office and kind of take shape of like his desk and everything else and kind of measure the volume of that space. And then we stuffed it full of balloons and we had to estimate using all this the packing ratio information that we had figured out during the class how many balloons would fit in there to fill it to the top and then you know we surprised another professor with that that gift on a monday morning (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome what is your favorite project that you've worked on and and why i have a lot of favorite projects um i would have to say one of the best is when you get a sample and you're able to put it into this completely unique proportional counter with a very low background design and, and produce a number that otherwise no one else would be able to come up with. And so it's, it's that impact factor of being able to, to kind of point to something and say, you know, I was part of this that without, you know, um, PNNL's expertise and experience and the measurements that I did to help, then, you know, they wouldn't have this piece of understanding. And so it's really about that impact value. Speaking of impact, yeah, you know, what you're doing, the work you're doing is really important in protecting your family, the nation, the world, really. And so I have to ask, what does it feel like to change the world? <laughs> well, you know, I sleep really well at night. So <laughs> it, it feels good. And, um, I don't want to, you know, downplay. Um, there's there's so many other people who are involved. And it really is a huge collaborative effort here at PNNL. And um, just the, the small part that I can play in contributing these world-class measurements is just really exciting. And it's, you know, it's why I get up every day and, and enjoy going to my job. And, you know, I just, I continue to just love it because it's it's been nearly 13 years and I still enjoy <laughs> getting up every day and going to work. So I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> that does speak for itself. And, uh, you know, not everyone can say that when it comes to the work that they do, you know. There's something special about that. Definitely. 
I'm very blessed. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. This has been really fun. It has. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for listening to SciVibe. We're dedicated to sharing the excitement of discovery. If you had an aha moment while listening to SciVibe, please share and subscribe.